0: Good
1: afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And today we get to drill down on the huge budget unveiled yesterday afternoon. The biggest ticket item, of course, is childcare, but there is something Zoomers have been calling for though it's very unclear how the $3 billion to help create national standards for long-term care will be spent. Um, What I want to know is whether all that money is just going to consultants. And there is also a timeline for the promised top-up to old age security, along with a one-time 500 bucks, And since I have people in the know here, I want some insight into the question of the path from the budget document to the bank accounts of intended recipients and what parts of this obvious election-ready document will actually get done and how does it happen in budgets that some things get done and some things just don't. If you have questions, the numbers to call 416 toll free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, I would like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga South. Hello, everyone. Hi, hey, Libby. Hi, Hi, guys. Okay, so let us start with the former finance minister, Charles Sousa. So this is a a huge budget. What did you make of it?
2: It is a big budget. It's a big deal for uh, Minister Freeland, who this will be her first. And um, i got to tell you, there's a lot of fiscal and economic challenges. Uh, She's obviously doing a budget to support uh, her minority or to support Trudeau's minority government to get the NDP to buy in. And the Greens, it is a kind budget to many. There's a lot of spending, for sure. The question is, you know, the sustainability of all the program spending that's happening. And there's two forces at play for her. She, you know, on the one hand, they're trying to support the, 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 the pandemic, while at the same time look for a recovery plan to increase economic activity. Not easy. And some of the work that's being proposed and some of the spending, which there is a lot of, uh, to your point earlier, how is it going to get into the hands of uh, the people? Um, but there's deficits, and there's not just a federal deficit. I mean, there's also provincial implications, and, you know, economists like Don Drummond have commented on the shortcomings of some of these budgets, but I feel for her it's it's a tough spot, hasn't been done in two years, and uh, I, I say we, we uh, mind you, it's also something that's Prevalent around the world. All budgets around the world are in the same predicament.
1: John Capobianco, uh, my my question about consulting, obviously one of the things that we are most concerned here is this question of national standards for long-term care. We know, we understand that it's a big schmauzel because of the, the, the jurisdiction issues, it's a provincial jurisdiction, the provinces have to buy in, but is it possible that that whole $3 billion is just for studies and consultants? You
3: used my favorite word, Libby <laughs> to describe certain things. And I think from that perspective, I, I think it is. You know, look, I um, um, and I give full credit to uh, the former finance minister, Charles Souza who's, who's delivered a number of budgets, probably a third in length uh, to this one. This one was over 700 pages. So there's no doubt it was going to be uh, everything to everyone. Uh, including, you know, pledging of over 100 billion dollars in new spending and and whatnot. So, you know, from from the perspective of the budget, would be I would say, look, you know, extending some of the programs that are COVID-related, I think was good news. It's certainly expected and, and and welcome news to small businesses and those individuals that that need it. I think that, that insurance that they're going to be extending those until, I think, the fall, uh, is, uh, is, is welcome news. But when it comes to national standards, and I think there's a couple of things that they've missed, right? They missed the pharmacare, which was a big item that, uh, that the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, wanted to see in the budget. And it, I think it, it barely got a mention, if, if, if not, uh, if, if just a couple of mentions. But the child care, to, you, to your point, uh, is, is another one of those big, big items that, the government is talking about with respect to national standards and stuff. And, and there was some level of, of need because of what we saw from the pandemic and, and the challenges that long-term care facilities and, by the way, childcare and, and other facilities were, were having. So the federal government needed to sort of look at maybe putting national standards to for those areas. But when you start talking about studies uh, and, and you know paying consultants to look at that, that to me is, it sounds like years away. Uh, and I think that's what the frustration in this is, Libby, and that is people are going to look at this and say, well, there's no action item on this. There's no particular timeline. You know, we're talking about studies and, and, and looking at committees, and, and, and that's always a liberal code for, you know, obfuscating and putting this thing down for, for years to come. So I don't know if it's ever going to get done.
1: Well, and frankly, to me, $3 billion for consultants is a, is, a, is a lot. I mean, uh, good news for you guys, I guess. Well <laughs>
3: You know what, it, it, and it depends, right? And it depends on the consultants they get and, and what happens. And, you know, the other thing, too, is if you get too many consultants, they trip over each other, nothing ever gets done. So there's always these uh, these pitfalls that comes with this kind of stuff. So I think the devil will be in the detail with respect to how they, they enroll this. I think there's some support for this, but – but also, I think the provinces are going to have a big say, because it's, it's, it's their jurisdiction as well, to see what, you know, what, how they're going to implement this and, and what kind of money they're going to get to, to ensure that this gets implemented in their respective, respective jurisdictions.
1: And Karen, you know, John just mentioned Pharmacare. So PharmaCare, uh, and I saw some interesting commentary on this, and it sort of was, well, you know, uh PharmaCare was, uh, it was a shiny object, and the Prime Minister maybe got bored of it, and if they promised all this money for child care, then they can't do PharmaCare at the same time, and I don't know, I guess the difference is there is a number attached to child care, but uh, I mean, what about all that, you know, it's, this budget is all about child care, the last one, PharmaCare, but what's going on? Well, yeah, it, you know, I think they
4: looked at it, they've, they've checked all the boxes. You know, they, they've hit child care, they've hit um, with supports, they've hit seniors with supports, they've, they can do, you know, uh, quote-unquote infrastructure, they tick that box. So I guess they felt that they ticked enough boxes, they didn't need to tick the PharmaCare box. Um, But what is concerning, I mean, there's a lot of things that are concerning, of course, and one is that it's great to make a federal announcement about child care, but it's completely dependent upon the provincial buy-in. It's another thing to make an announcement about PharmaCare because they actually could deliver on PharmaCare. And so it's one of those things you just have to wonder how much of this is really going to – they're big pronouncements, they're they're big aspirations. But to your point, you know, if we look two or three years down the road – Will the needle have moved around child care? Will it have moved around long-term care and, and how the national standards have been developed? Because for heaven's sakes, that has been studied and studied and studied over the last 10 months. I don't know that there's anything more we can learn about what is required to elevate that standard of care in assisted living and senior facilities. So there are some questions to your point, Libby, about, you know, these big announcements, how do they get targeted and when do they get realized? And some of the assumptions which I think are particularly dangerous is the one about interest rates staying low and limited inflation. Because I can tell you, at Variety Village, we received a grant to do capital renewal in our facility, and we can't get some of the materials because there's so much demand and not enough supply. And little things like the price of wood has been three times it shot up three times what it was this time last year. I mean,
1: tell, and, tell and, me about it. We are um, w- w- at home. like We're just trying to do uh, uh, some, some fix-ups and renovations, and suddenly we're told that, you know, two-by-fours cost three times as much as they did last year. And that trickles through new housing, new
4: construction, new transit, new rebuild, the capital grants that the Liberals have unfolded. It's all about, quote-unquote, infrastructure. And it is all about materials that are going to quickly come under short supply. And that is going to put cost pressures on the system at large at a time when that's the last thing we want to see.
1: Yeah. And um, Charles Souza, one of the critiques that I've seen of of some of this when it comes to, uh, you know, I know there are jurisdictional issues and there are places like Quebec that will object on principle right? Uh, But beyond that, I've seen a criticism that when it comes to cost-sharing programs, you know, they start off as cost-sharing programs, and then if the federal government gets bored, they just leave it in the province's lap. Is is that, you think, going to be a concern?
2: Well, I mean, when I was finance minister, I had those concerns where health care and program spending were match and then they over time changed and the province was taking a lion's share of the cost because, you know, things get expensive over time and then the feds don't keep up. So the question with the national child care or national child care program will be as, as indicated by Karen and others, it, it is dependent upon the provinces and, you know, Ontario, we introduced a child care program, which they nixed they're gonna to have to participate with Ontario in order to make that work. Uh, and so that'll be up for discussion still. So the timing of some of these programs will be dependent upon some of these negotiations. Now, there are things that are in the federal peer view, uh, that they can do some transfers right now with seniors and old age and, and, and long-term care supports. So there's some uh, you know, program spending for infrastructure as mentioned that can, can start uh, more quickly. But uh, there is a cycle here, and that cycle may take more than a year. Um, as so, and it's enabling them to avoid the confidence measure at this point in hopes that they can uh, you know, have an economic, a greater economic recovery in time. But that, that's questionable. And, and some of their spending may not keep up to what's necessary. And, and, you know, and the minister has huge challenges. All of them do. Provin- provincially, federally, because of this pandemic, it, it, these are uncertain times. And what people are looking for is greater certainty by government and less risk. Um, but, you know, we, we don't have that luxury. And I suspect that this budget will get them through this cycle. But at the same time, expectations are going to be high for some of these programs. Pharmacare was introduced by the province of Ontario when, in one of my budgets as well. And it was used by the feds initially uh, but the pandemic took over, and I think they concentrated on those efforts prior, instead of doing a, uh, a pharma care for, the, for the, those most in need. They've been fulfilled elsewhere.
1: Okay, I have two questions for John, one still on this topic, one little pivoting away. So this focus on child care, uh, the conservative government, do you think they, they're going to be on board with that?
3: No, I don't. I, I think at the end of the day, anything that's nationalized or that comes from the federal government by way of top down is, is something that the conservatives will always be a little bit uh, worried about or, or have a bit of a jaundiced eye towards. Because I think, you know, the, the, the view has always been that parents are the are the best uh, uh, people to deal with with children and child care uh, and having some sort of a national standard uh, is risky because, it, it, you know, every jurisdiction is different and every every premier and every government. Uh, likes to be able to deal with, with child care in, in a way that befits their, their province. You mentioned Libya about Quebec. Quebec for sure always looks, uh, looks, uh, doesn't look to the federal government to do anything on a national standard because they view, uh, things in Quebec to be different than, than other provinces and they have every right to as other provinces do. So I think that government will always look upon that. Uh, the conservatives and the opposition certainly you know not so much on on Jagmeet Singh who's been calling for national uh programs but certainly the conservatives have been and i would also say one thing too and, and charles knows this as a former finance minister any cost sharing or any any discussions of cost sharing between the feds and the provinces uh are always full of risks because you know it, it's one thing to talk about it and have it in a budget uh, it's another thing for it to come roll to be rolled out and for it to be implemented in a way that both parties want to see it done and then you throw a pandemic in when the provinces are looking for the feds for all sorts of money with respect to health care and other spending uh you know these kind of programs get delayed and pushed back because of the uh the urgency of what of what, of what we're in now so so i, I look at i look I look at all that from from a from a totality perspective would be and have some some concerns with 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 respect to how it's going to be rolled out
1: okay and John okay, pivoting uh to queen's park so uh, last friday the government shut down playgrounds shut down tennis courts shut down golf courses and gave police powers they've walked some of that back they keep insisting that uh they are listening to the scientists the scientists you know are on record saying they're not listening so uh john you're you're an insider there what were they thinking well, look. You know,
3: they obviously had a bad week uh, and, and, a, and a bad um, and a bad weekend for sure. I think the premier, and I've said this before on air, and I've always been a defender of the premier, and still am. And, and the work that they tried to do, and, and and how they're trying to deal with it, and not just this premier, but all premiers. And I've also been very supportive of the prime minister when he's done good things, because I think we need to be, and we need to acknowledge that. Um, I, I think the premier has been trying that, that sort of that fine balance of trying to keep small businesses going and, and keep people's mental health in check with respect to keeping things open. I think they went too far with respect to the playgrounds and, and sort of the police state. And I think that showed in, in the, the frustration with the numbers that people are just aren't listening to the rules no matter which province you're in. They're just not listening to people's uh, the, the, the leader saying, "Look, we got to still isolate, and we got to wear masks. People are getting vaccinated, are going out there without masks, thinking that they're invincible." So I think that there was a bit of a, you know, we got a lockdown, we got to get tough with this, and and with respect to the borders and making sure that there were some checkpoints at borders, I think most people would understand that. But I think he went obviously too far, and they recognized that and they moved back on the uh, not only on the playground and uh, recreational park uh, outside activities, but also with respect to police being able to check. Uh, folks that they think might be uh, might be random. So there's no question they had a bad uh, a bad week and a bad weekend, Libby, and, and obviously they recognize it. And and any government that recognizes there's a problem and decides to change it quick quickly and recognizes that, I think you know is is a good thing. And and obviously they're they're going to keep monitoring the situation as they should be.
1: Karen, was it just a bad week? Uh, uh, all is forgiven, or are, have they kind of? They seem to have kind of turned a corner from being perceived as doing a reasonable job to, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, the basement. Yeah. yeah, you know, again, my, as an individual, my heart goes out uh, to Ford and his cabinet,
4: because I there is no question I think they're well-intended with what they're trying to achieve. And as John was saying, I think they were trying to hammer home the message that we're in a, in a spot where we all need to behave a bit differently. And to, to demonstrate how differently we must behave, we're going to do the following, and, and I also, you know, I think that the science table maybe felt that they weren't heard, but, you know, also they're maybe asking for things that the government actually can't deliver on because they keep hammering home that they need, that the government needs to impose sick days, but that's not something they're in a position to do. And Why not? so I think they're
1: not, because Why not? the federal government already has that. And well, also then, th- that's an excuse. That is, that is what but they say.
4: Maybe it's also a reality and that
1: employers are responsible for sick days.
4: And so... I think that what Peel has done is actually a more effective strategy. It has said to employers, "If you don't help your employees stay home when they're sick, we're going to shut you down." Now, that, and I think that is more effective because that clearly puts the onus back on the employer to be responsible and not encourage people to come to work when they're sick. And so, I think there's a combination of things that are happening, and um, but there's no question. It's from the public's perspective, there's a sense that does anybody know what's going on?
1: <laughs> Charles, Susan, does anybody know what's going on?
2: <laughs> yeah, you have to ask, right? We all ask the same question. And listen, the premier isn't it in is indeed in a tough spot because times are tough. And mm-hmm. and I certainly can't appreciate uh, what what they may have to deal with, which we we didn't have, right? I mean, we had a global meltdown financially, and we did what we took we we took measures to overcome. And this one is still underway. I mean, he's dealing with things every day on this matter. But Ford Nation is indeed taking a beating. I mean, he seems to be making decisions on the fly. He often rolls back after overreacting. And it doesn't seem he's prepared. And it's a bit of a groundhog day because he's done this multiple times. And, of course, then there's the blame game to deflect the issues. But I don't know. Libby, and, John, I'd rather have you as the premier at this point because <laughs> you seem to have a <laughs> <Me> sense <do. laughs> of being straight and you speak – uh, clearly, and, and it 's not enough to say, "My friends, I will double down." well that 's nice and folksy, but it 's not specific, and, and that 's not leadership. So I, I feel for him, the NDP, of course, now they 're calling for the Auditor General to do a review, and that 's just an exercise in trying to shame him sometime in the next few weeks. But what we need is direction now. We don 't need the photo ops or the platitudes or the overpromise or the blame for that matter. I'm with John on this, and I'm with Karen. I mean, they need to work together, minimize the degree of uncertainty that's there, and find a way uh, to help those most in need. And uh, sick days is something that has, that that existed and they removed. And what's happening, people are going to work sick because they can't afford to stay home.
1: Well, yeah. Um, and, uh, Stephen Del Duca, the current leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, has called for Ford to resign, called him the worst premier ever. Charles, uh, uh, what's your view of that?
2: Um, You know, (laughs) Stephen needs to get uh, his message out, needs to be heard. Here, he's in a tough spot, too. He's the leader (laughs) of a party that doesn't have official status. And yet, we are tied with the Conservatives in many ridings now which says a lot, not about Stephen, as as much as it says a lot about Doug Ford and the lack of confidence people seem to be having at this point. Um, So uh, Stephen is very articulate. Uh, He is uh, an individual who knows his stuff. He's well-prepared. He doesn't have the same degree of warmth as Doug does, uh, but he does have the ability to make it happen, and he's needling Doug all the time because he needs to, and that's what the opposition does.
1: Hmm. John, I mean, uh, it's true, uh, Doug Ford comes across as sincere. He has a lot of warmth, but you know, uh, uh, I'm remembering all those things that, that he got so worked up about and said he would deal with. He didn't deal with them. Uh, try, uh, that iron ring around long-term care. Well, and he's, he's still
3: working on that, and, and, and Libby, you know that, that he is spending a, a lot of money, more than any other government and, and jurisdiction on long-term care, and it's a, it's a work in progress, and he, he identified that. I think that's something that he still continues to focus on, but, you know, look, I, I, don't, ex- I, I don't expect anything less from the opposition when it comes to you know their attack on on, on the premier that's been from the very beginning um, you know and and we've seen that so their calls for his him to resign are, are obviously you know why wouldn't your why wouldn't you want your, your major competitor to resign at a time when when you're fighting for his position but look you know the thing is is that what I don't what I don't see from from the NDP leader and I haven't seen from the NDP leader for the last year certainly from Stephen El duca you know is it's one thing to, to complain they're in a good position as opposition leader to complain about things but where's where you know they've never come up with a solution or a thought or something to say, well, listen, if you did it this way, you know, they, they, so that's always been the problem. And, and it's, it's going to be like that with any leader. Uh, you see it at the federal level as well, but also with other premiers. But look, at the end of the day, I think they have to deal with what they've got every day. There's changing dynamics of this pandemic. Um, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, I've got my, my uh, appointment for my vaccine this coming Friday, so I'm happy about that. Uh, and I think as more people get vaccinated, not only in Ontario and Canada, the better it is. And I think that will be the ultimate solution to all this is just people getting vaccinated.
1: Hopefully, uh, Karen and and guys, I have some breaking news. This is really interesting that Toronto seems to be following Peel region and they will be issuing one of those Section 22 orders uh, to close any workplace where five or more confirmed cases are identified within a two-week period. So, um, uh, you know, at, at this point, I'm starting to think, hey, w- why didn't they do this sooner? And congratulations right. to Lawrence Lode for being yeah. the first one to do it. But, you know, uh, if you were waiting for the province to do it, uh, you know, well, I, at least they're getting to it now. But But you've got to think, hey, you know, this should have been done before. Can I jump in? Yeah, that's for you.
4: Yeah, there is no question because, as a workplace, it's been shuttered for the better part of a year. For most of what I do, looking around and seeing that Amazon plant, the Amazon plant has exposures and, and transmission. The Canada Post plant has exposure and transmission. There is, you know, rapid testing kits that are going unused. Someone who's been sitting by the sidelines waiting for something to happen, knowing where the transmission, 50% of the transmission is occurring, you know, finally, there is some action to target at the source. And, you know, all other approaches, you know, to limit um, people crossing the border are ludicrous. And, you know, we can, you know... lecture people and nag people all we want and ask them not to go to work if they're sick. But, you know, fundamentally, now it's up to the employer to take the action that they should have been taking all along, but weren't. So I think, hallelujah, for once, something's making sense to me.
1: Okay, here's another thing. I saw a very moving interview with a worker who said that that her uh, stress worry day starts when she is on the TTC getting to work. There are all kinds of people there with no masks, and I'm sure they all have very good reasons for that. And that is, I have to say, one thing that I have never believed, that there is not transmission on the TTC. Right. Uh, who wants to take that? John oh, or Karen, Charles? Karen ran the TTC. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> yeah,
3: I said Sharon ran the TTC at one point.
2: <laughs> you know, Libby, I had have- I may I may have mentioned this in a previous call. I had a TTC worker email me um, asking for me to provide persuasion or support because I made them an essential service when Doug Ford's brother was alive as mayor, and he's complaining saying, "Listen, we're in need. We're on the front lines, and we got to get vaccinated, and, and we're not getting it. And it makes no it makes no sense that that is not happening." It also makes no sense that we don't have maybe an opportunity at these TTC locations to direct people to get vaccinated themselves. Um, It is concerning. Absolutely. But what about
1: on the buses?
2: Everywhere. No, no,
1: no, I mean the workers, that seems to be a no brainer, but, but you, you, we've seen the pictures of those crowded buses with people who aren't wearing masks.
2: Yeah. 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 And and, and then how do you enforce those matters? You know, it's, it's a, it's the, the transit system. Now, the go lines seem to be vacant. No one seems to be on them. Every time I see them, they're, em- they're empty. I'm not sure what's happening in the mornings. But um, you, what can you do? You got to get those, on, those that are working on those stations, the employees vaccinated, and I encourage many people that have to operate in that environment to be vaccinated as well.
3: Well, and maybe just quickly, too, I know that the TTC is working hard and they have been working hard since the pandemic to ensure their buses, the tests are being done, they're wiped down on a regular basis and all that stuff. So on the inside, I think they're doing the best they can. But obviously, the concern is people that go on the bus without masks. And what I'm finding and what people are finding is that there are more and more people that are being defiant about not wearing masks. And what bus drivers don't want to do and unions don't want their bus drivers to be exposed to is turning back somebody who doesn't want to doesn't have a mask and causing a scene uh, that is going to ultimately happen and, and, and cause problems for them down the road. That's the challenge, too. Right. Yeah,
4: Combined with the fact that as more people get vaccinated, to your point, John, they think they now have permission to go around without a mask. So that is another issue that needs to be clarified. Okay, yes. and
1: guess what? I'm going to be talking to Dr. Peter uni after the break, and and we will. That's one of the things we'll try to clarify. Uh, and and you know what? In this country, there are very few people who are fully vaccinated. A lot of us had, had have had our first shots, and it's going to be a long time before number two comes along. So, um, I think that's a good note to end things on. It's really great to talk to you guys again. It's been a few weeks. Yeah. thanks, Livy. Good to have you back, Livy. Thank you. Thanks with- so much, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Souza. Appreciate your time. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, a Dr. Peter Uni will clarify a lot of things for us when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Okay, turning now to the third wave of the pandemic. So the province, as we said, keeps insisting they've been listening to the scientists all along and a whole parade of scientists. Experts for the government are on record as saying that the Ford government is not listening. And nowhere was that more true than last Friday's fiasco, which had the government closing playgrounds and increasing police powers rather than doing exactly what the experts have been recommending, which is paid provincial sick days and narrowing the definition of essential workplaces and closing those that are not really necessary. Some of that has been walked back. So uh, do we have it right now? Does the province have it right now in terms of regulations? Uh, and I just want to repeat for Dr. Peter Yuni the breaking news. So earlier yesterday, we heard that Peel was invoking a Section 22 order, uh, which will close workplaces if they have more than five cases. Well, Toronto is now going to be following suit. So the question is, are we in the right place. Let me give the numbers out for people who have questions for the doctor. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Doctor uni, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thanks for having me again. Hi.
1: Hi. So uh, we have these two Section 22s now uh, where uh, the municipalities, the the public officers of health have stepped in and said that they are going to close workplaces with uh, five or more cases that can be traced to them or that can't be traced. Is uh, How important is that?
5: I think this is very important. This is exactly the right move right now to do, you know, among, among other things. We have... You know, various tools in the toolbox, and uh, this is one that is likely to make a difference again. uh, Remember, one of the challenges we have now, of course, is if these businesses or facilities are closing and people need to stay home, we again, of course, have a challenge then uh, financially, uh, will they be salaried or not?
1: Well, that, that's true. But for the businesses that will also be shut down, they, this might give them the incentive to pay for sick days, to pay for time when people are going to get vaccinated and, and all yeah. of that to prevent being shut down. Because you know what? Well, I think Amazon actually did pay during a shutdown. But, uh, you know, the, the places that are essential or so-called essential, well, they're doing pretty well.
5: Yeah look uh, you're completely right with what you're saying we need we need just to make sure now that we that all of us just take this extremely seriously and you're right with the incentive um if they take it you know the right way this means they have their, their own interest to be as you know safe as possible now and we know that this has slipped you know in the past i've heard you know descriptions from my colleagues you know in different situations if we can get back to to a situation where we really take this seriously you know it's simple stuff such as if you really have to be in an essential workplace that really the employers make sure and support that everybody wears a mask and everybody is able to uh, keep social distance or physical distance of two meters. If this works, this already makes a big difference. It is the employers who actually need to reinforce this message, work with their people, et cetera. And it's it's, uh, important that we all get this right. And as you say, this is an incentive. If your business is actually getting closed, if you have an outbreak or so, A, It will really be the right thing, you know, from a pandemic control measure. But on the other hand, it also makes clear also to employers, okay, we need to take it seriously now.
1: Hmm. Um, This is good. Now, uh, so we had those uh, fairly draconian measures that were announced Friday, they were walked back. Uh, Do you think, in your opinion, they haven't walked back, though, uh, closing golf courses and tennis courts? As a matter of fact, uh, my husband was taking a A walk in a park yesterday, and he happened to walk onto the golf course without clubs or anything. He's not a golfer. And uh, there were several employees there kicking him off. So um, do you think that's necessary?
5: No, it's not. I mean, if we know uh, about the characteristics of this pandemic, meanwhile, I think it has become amply clear that outdoors is considerably safer than indoors. This doesn't mean that we can let it slip outdoors, no? So if we are unsafe, behaving uh, uh, unsafe outdoors, then things happen again, especially with the new variants. And we have had, you know, uh, situations where, you know, entire groups of people who just gathered outdoors in a backyard got infected. You don't want that. So people on a playground, for example, should be with masks. Period and uh, physically distance the parents uh, the parents for uh, for example as much as possible. Um, What you're saying, of course, doesn't make much sense if you think about the tennis court. Obviously, last time I checked, tennis players are actually quite far away from each other. As long as they don't congratulate themselves, you know, after the game and uh, do handshakes and uh, and embrace themselves, all is fine. Uh, so, so we just need to be a bit more pragmatic and a bit clear about how to make outdoor space as safe as possible, and that's absolutely doable
1: and and to to give the the government a little bit of credit in terms of their trying to reduce i mean. Um, I can tell you personally that the, the street where I live is a big magnet for people to walk their dogs and stuff. And, and there is a lot of very unsafe behavior. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they won't even let you out of the driveway and there's a big clumps of them. Uh, and, um, people are frustrated. And so I, I think there is a bit of an issue with the way people are behaving even outdoors. But, uh, you know, I don't think that necessarily those measures were maybe a little bit much.
5: Yeah, you see, if you make the same mistakes outdoors than indoors, it's still safer outdoors to make these mistakes. Not that we should to make these mistakes. If you make these mistakes indoors right now, you know, and just don't keep, don't mask, don't keep the distance indoors. If somebody is infected, it starts to be a relatively safe bet that uh, all of those who make the mistakes may get infected too. Outdoors, uh, the the risk is, is probably by a factor 10 to 20 lower, but it's not zero. So people really need just to have the right behavior and all of us you know need to help and remind others you know if we see others just uh, you know showing a lapse of behavior no two meter distance and uh, no mask etc we just need to remind them please do that right now it's really a serious situation
1: okay i'm going to take a call from linda i think she has a question for you hello linda hi thanks for taking my call libby um, I wanted to ask a question regarding
4: AstraZeneca. Um, Dr. Crotty, who's a vaccine researcher in the U.S. that advises the White House, has indicated that there is uh, science that uh, is definitive that indicates that the AstraZeneca is not effective against the African South African strain of COVID. Um, and my question is if you receive the AstraZeneca um, vaccine mm-hmm. uh, and then you need to have another vaccine, um, can you get the RNA vaccines on top of the AstraZeneca?
5: Yes. That's a really good question. Um, what is important to, to, uh, to see is indeed we have, with, uh, with the variants originally found in South Africa and Brazil, we have variants that escape um, the immune system partially and therefore also the, uh, the vaccines partially. The mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna still work to a slightly lesser extent, you know, 90% uh, effectiveness, um, for the uh, for B. one one seven from the UK and the early variants, sixty percent effectiveness for the others, which is still actually good compared with uh, with a flu vaccine. But um, the point is indeed that that the AstraZeneca vaccine has an issue with these vaccine escaping variants. And. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. It does not preclude you to have um, a second shot then with a Moderna or Pfizer mRNA vaccine. And in fact, right now there are trials ongoing. I'm especially aware of those ongoing in uh, in the United Kingdom that look exactly into that. And it's absolutely, uh, you know, plausible that in a few weeks or months from now, what we will find is that an optimum uh, as a combination will be AstraZeneca first and then Pfizer and Moderna later.
1: Okay, okay. Linda. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Yuni, uh, another thing I want to get to here is this question about uh, behavior after you get one shot. There are now quite a few people who've had one dose of vaccines. And uh, we just heard from our, our last panelists that they're seeing more and more people unmasked. Can, can you st- can, it, it, does it make sense to be unmasked after no. one shot? How should you behave?
5: Yeah, no, it yeah, it actually scares me when I hear that. Um, you know, after one shot, what what this helps for you personally is to avoid the most severe complications of COVID 19. So it protects against severe disease. That's great news for every single one of us who has received the shot. But um, while it uh, decreases the risk of being infected a bit and of transmitting to others a bit. It only decreases it to a certain extent, perhaps 30 percent, perhaps 40 percent. The data are not completely consistent and that this is simply not enough right now. When you think about that, okay, um, you start to have a behavior that is actually unsafe. This means that you could contribute more to transmission once you have had one dose of the vaccine, if you then start not to wear masks anymore and ignore physical distancing. That's absolutely what not should happen right now.
1: Okay. Uh, Dr. Yuni, I I know that you were very frustrated last week and you were thinking of quitting. Uh, uh, I I can tell you that uh, a lot of us are very glad you decided to hang in there, but uh, how are you feeling about it all right now? Yeah,
5: well, uh, just to clarify that, I actually wasn't frustrated. I was just quite desperate, to be honest with you. And, you know, it was just um, what we saw last week, just showed that there was a certain misunderstanding about what this pandemic is all about, you know, the epidemiology of the disease. And uh, while I was ready to let go, I do that when I'm in these sorts of situations. You know, we sometimes need to be ready to let go what we're doing just to figure out if it's still the right thing if we continue. And it became then clear, uh, you know, just while listening to myself, but also listening to my friends, it would not be right if I, you know, now let go and step down. Um, And, you know, we're ready to go. We're ready to help. And we just need to move on and we need to fix this.
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, thank you so much. And I just, before I let you go, want to repeat, uh, you know, one dose of vaccine, people, you still have to distance and wear masks. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you very much for being with us.
5: Thanks a lot for having me. NAD.
1: Okay, bye-bye.
5: Bye-bye.
1: Okay, we are taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Johnny Papp, pharmacist Johnny Papp, about the AstraZeneca, the AstraZeneca vaccine now available for people over 40 and uh, breaking news that the government has made some kind of deal with Shoppers Drug Mart. So actually, in some places, AstraZeneca will be available 20, 20- hours a day. We'll talk about the effect on demand and all of that when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. As of today, people over 40 are eligible to get the AstraZeneca vaccine in pharmacies and primary care settings. And part of the reason was that some people in the older age groups were electing not to take that inoculation, waiting for a shot at a shot of Pfizer or Moderna, a strategy that is very contrary to the best medical advice, by the way, which is get the first shot you can. As I have said many times here, I think the biggest problem with AstraZeneca is the confused and conflicting communication about the risks. And uh, I want to throw it out to the audience. What do you think of the AstraZeneca? Have you been, you know, trying to maneuver something with it? 416-360-0740, toll-free one 866 740 740 Now, right now, NASI, which is the uh, Advisory Council on Immunization, is only recommending AstraZeneca for people over 55. And we're expecting that to change yet again this afternoon. Uh, you know, just another one in the litany of reversals. So uh, what's happening on the ground, there are reports of a huge increase in demand for vaccines that seem to have been languishing in fridges. Uh, the number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 Now let's go to John Papasturgio, Toronto-based pharmacist and pharmacy owner with Shoppers Drug Mart. Hey, John.
6: Hey, Libby. Good to be back.
1: Nice to talk to you again. So uh, what is the situation in terms of the demand for AstraZeneca vaccines at, at, at your pharmacies?
6: Oh, yeah, we turned the switch right back on. You know, you were right there in your introduction. It seemed like the demand was starting to wane a little bit uh, amongst the seniors group. But by opening up the age demographic, uh, you know, I got here this morning and there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, a full agenda today. We're taking, you know, uh, appointments now, uh, scheduled appointments, but it is going to be a packed day and the the phones uh, won't stop ringing here today. So it seems like Yeah, the demand's come back.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you give us a sense of of how many people, how many of those jabs you expect to uh, administer today?
6: Well, you know, we're pretty productive here, so we we could get on a busy day anywhere between, you know, 250. Our highest ever has been 500 shots. just depends on kind of the workflow and, uh, uh, you know, uh, if we get people in and out relatively quickly. What does Hamper us a little bit, Libby, as well. As you remember, the you know the uh, space or the limitations on the number of people that could be in the store has been reduced as well right now uh, during this phase of the pandemic. So we're uh, conscious of that as well. So that does slow us down a bit. We can't you know queue up lines in the store and have people waiting, uh, uh, which does make us a little bit more efficient. But again, we've got to be uh, careful with respect to people's health also
1: uh so uh, would you say like i know that there was this whole business about hesitancy just around AstraZeneca i mean in your experience has that dissipated or is it different with different age groups
6: no unfortunately i don't think so i think i think this is day 1 for the uh, new age cohort so i you know i'm not surprised that we're going to see demand i think the vaccine itself has gotten a bad rap. Uh, you know, I think we've got to do the you know the best we can to get the message out that the vaccine is safe. You're very right. There's been a lot of, you know, confusion around the age groups and clotting and, you know, what should we do? But the reality is when they call your number, get vaccinated. That's the most important thing. I mean, we've got these variants that are flying around now as well. It's, uh, uh, it's such a shame. I've had a case here, Libby, where, I had uh, a patient pass on the vaccine and I, I found out subsequently that she's uh, in the ICU so Oh no. Yeah, it's, you you're we're starting to hear stories like this. I mean, it's uh it, there's no no reason to pass, especially in the uh age cohort we're looking at now, 40 and over. It's absolutely safe. Come in, make an appointment, get vaccinated.
1: Yeah. Um, what about your supply? We are getting mixed messages yeah. on that too. I had heard that that part of the reason for opening it up the, that that uh, some people were afraid AstraZeneca batches would be going bad in the fridge. Now I'm hearing that there's a delay in shipments. We've got the premier reaching out on his own to get more of this stuff. What is your supply situation? Yeah.
6: So I, you know, I'm in good supply right now. The the challenge is exactly what you said. I'd Never know what's coming right we don't know exactly uh, when uh, the next shipments will arrive uh, we've been in good supply to be honest for the last few weeks so I haven't run out of vaccine at all that being said with the increased demand right now and uh, you know with the people over 40 uh, I'm not sure uh, if I'll have vaccine next week at this pace so um, hopefully uh, we were supposed to get more hopefully it all comes in but again that's out of my hands i I'm just here vaccinating away, and uh, as the doses come in, we make sure we get them uh, scheduled. And, uh, hopefully we can uh, catch up to the rest of the world Libby, because we're dragging way behind. Uh,
1: now, uh, what is the manufacturer's recommendation for a second dose? And, and is it, uh, now, uh, you know, it's not clear to me. I, I got a first, uh, jab and it's not clear to me. I mean, is the government going to get in touch with me for a second? And, uh, uh, so, first of all, what, what is the manufacturer's recommendation for the second yeah, dose? That's,
6: that's a great question, and I'm getting a lot of calls from the pharmacy about that. So, it is, it, with AstraZeneca, you could get that second dose recommended anywhere between four to 12 weeks. What becomes important is if you look at the data a little bit closer, it seems like it's more effective if you wait longer. So, you wait to, to around that 12-week period, and that's, I think, what we're recommending. Given the supply issues, I think naturally that's what's going to happen. We're not going to start vaccinating patients with uh, you know at four weeks if we can still get people vaccinated with that first dose. Remember, Libby, the, the the biggest chunk of efficacy comes with that first dose, right? That initial dose. So we want to get as many people vaccinated with dose one, and then I I, I suspect that around uh, the twelve week period, we'll be giving uh, emails and calls and texts to everyone uh, who came to our pharmacies to get vaccinated to come in and get that second dose hopefully a supply will be stabilized by that point
1: well uh right now uh, there's this business about an interval of 4 months is that just for the other vaccines for the Pfizer Moderna
6: yeah that's i mean they're stretching out the 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 the, the uh, intervals for these vaccines as well and i don't think uh, those, uh, you know, those uh, intervals are based on the monographs of the vaccines, but they're they're being looked at right now. And again, the, the, the idea behind that is to allow uh, the most people as possible to get vaccinated. But with respect to AstraZeneca, which be, that's the only vaccine we're giving in pharmacies here in Ontario right now, I think we'll land at that 12 uh, uh, week period.
1: OK, but it's not there now. Now it's at four months. Is that right? No, no, no. It's
6: it's it's always been four to twelve weeks, right? So we haven't started calling in the second uh, patients yet at all.
1: No, no, no. I get it, but mm-hmm. but the uh, the the government or NASI stretched the interval oh, yeah. to four months. So is it is the way things stand now for AstraZeneca a four month interval?
6: I uh, don't. No, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, the way we're going to do it is uh, at twelve weeks, we'll we'll start calling people back if we have supply, and I think we will have supply at that time. So, you know, naturally, I think that's what's going to happen. If we hear any different and we have to stretch it out based on that, uh, we may have to do that. But I haven't been told that as of yet in the pharmacy space anyways.
1: Okay, that's a, that's interesting. But yeah. So that's a difference from the mRNA vaccines. Um, uh, we have like a little bit about, you know, a minute, a minute and a half less left. Uh, so uh, are are your pharmacies uh, some of the ones that are going to be open 24 hours to do this?
6: We're balling that around right now. <laughs> I mean, uh, possibly, Livia, I'll keep you posted on that. Um, we're a pretty busy location, so I, I, I'm not sure as of yet, but I think uh, there will be a list of pharmacies that are going to go uh, 24 hours. Uh, I think it adds to the convenience, the accessibility, uh, it'll give us some more time to get to uh, all these patients. But I think. Uh, you know, we've seen it already happen a few times during this pandemic. The demand starts to wane, and I think that's what's disappointing. I think what we need to do is really get that message out. If you haven't been vaccinated, get in, get vaccinated. Please don't shop for vaccines. It's not going to work in your favor. We don't have consistent supply yet. And it's very, very hard to predict when you'll have access to something like Moderna or Pfizer, uh, you know, and there's a lot of misconceptions around the different vaccines already.
1: Yeah, uh, I've got to say, and we're waiting, of course, for Nasi. Now, right now, Nasi's recommendation is, is 55 or over. The provinces don't have to listen to that. That's right. I'm not even sure what those pop-up locations, what they're injecting uh, in those pop-up locations where it's open to people 18 or over. We're expecting yet, I mean, you know, um, I've got to say, my opinion... Uh, Science should not be interfered with, but when you're a body like NASI, you have to understand that the timing of your pronouncements is going to have an effect on the public and not in a good way.
6: Oh, I agree. And I think the amount of time I've spent between uh, vaccinations having to explain the same thing over and over, and you know, I, I, don't, I don't blame the patients. They're getting mixed messages, right? And uh, that, that causes confusion. And then we have to spend a lot of time uh, having to kind of, well, uh, uh, those fears that, you know, we could be giving more vaccines during that time. And I think we need to ask you to come out with strong, strong recommendations, stick to it, and uh, let's get the Canadian public vaccinated here. It's getting a little bit ridiculous.
1: Okay. Uh, we're certainly on board with that. John Papasturgio, great talking to you as always, and uh, good luck with uh, uh, what looks to be a big vaccination drive and hope it goes well.
6: Yeah, thanks,
1: Libby. See you soon. Okay, see you soon, hopefully, another thing, hopefully. Um, And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.